KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. And from the campus of Stanford University, this is the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast, featuring in-depth, one-on-one interviews with mission-driven entrepreneurs, renowned thought leaders, and game changers committed to ideas, innovation, and getting the heck out of the building. Our radio show and podcast eliminates the struggle, breakthroughs, and exceptional outcomes game changers bring to industries, organizations, and lives. Hosted by Tom DiOro, Principal of Accurate, and retired Colonel Pete Newell, CEO of BMNT. Thank you, Charlotte. For our guest today, please welcome Jake Bullock, founder and CEO of Raven. Jake served eight years as a Navy SEAL. He was deployed four times to Iraq and Afghanistan, where his team primarily focused on counterinsurgency operations. Following his time in the SEALs, Jake earned his Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science from Columbia University. He conducted research on novel user interaction techniques for augmented reality for soldiers in Professor Steve Feiner's Computer Graphics and User Interface Lab. Raven was born from his experience. For more information, you can visit www.raven.com. That's R-A-V-N dot com. So, (laughs) I was just like, you know, other than the trials and tribulations of actually us getting to (laughs) the point where we can get started on this podcast every week. (laughs) So, Jake, you're a relatively new entrepreneur. Yeah, I'm sure lots of things have happened to you. I, so they have. Give us, give us either your funniest story or the most outlandish. I'll let you pick, pick the. Sure, sure. So this might be a combination of both, uh, and it didn't happen to me. It happened to my partner at the time. Now you are a seal, so uh, yeah, you know I'm, yeah. I'm accustomed to seals embellishing the truth. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, there are no books written on this one yet. So. Yeah, okay. Now, uh, we're building some technology that one of our components mounts to a rifle, a soldier's rifle, uh, to use user interface. And uh, as a result, we had to travel when we would give demos with things that looked like rifles. And for a while, we were just using airsoft guns, which you can fly out of any airport without declaring as long as you check it. It's just a plastic toy, right? Well, that's true in 49 out of the 50 states. In, uh, in New Jersey, my, uh, my partner at the time was at his gate having already checked uh, a couple of airsoft soft rifles and was pulled up to the desk and he thought he was getting an upgrade to first class and uh, he got sent back out through security where there was a group of police officers waiting for him and uh, they quickly arrested him. Apparently, New Jersey treats airsoft rifles like real rifles, real weapons, and he didn't declare it at all, so he spent that afternoon in jail. Mind you, this is a PhD in computer science, not exactly the most threatening individual on the planet, but uh, yeah, it took a, took a bit of effort to get him out of there and, uh, and, and bring that whole you know, thing to rev- resolution. Oh. So, yeah, I would say that was probably the most unexpected thing that's happened so far. And, and, and now when you travel and somebody has to be the airsoft bag checker, he's like, not me. Yeah, so that, that, done that, it. Been there, done that, ain't doing it again. Yeah, that was the impetus to get away from airsoft rifles. So quickly uh, went to what are called blue guns. Yeah. Which I'm sure you have some familiarity yeah, with, Pete. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Something that hasn't been banned by anybody. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, that's got to be the, that's the, the most intense story we've heard. Yeah, it was uh, it point. was unexpected, but I knew something was wrong because I hadn't heard from him in a while. And, uh, he, last he told me he was talking to police, and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and you know, the comments say, but guys, we're trying to do this for you. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. It must have been an interesting yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Turn around, put your hands back on the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, so, so a great start. <laughs> do for saver, and, you know, you're not atypical, but, but somebody leaves service after eight years and goes to college to get a bachelor's degree suddenly becomes an entrepreneur. And just let's go back to, you know, your time in the SEALs when, when you decided that you were going to change directions. How'd that go? Sure. So that happened fairly early on in my SEAL career. I, uh, I joined in 2003 right out of high school, uh, had always been interested in being a SEAL. So went right in, right through SEAL training and got to my SEAL team on the East Coast probably around 04 and spent the next seven years operational as a SEAL, so I got out in mid-11. But in my first deployment in uh, Baghdad around 2006, I had had a number of experiences overseas that, uh, that I felt could have been avoided with the application of, of uh, some new technology. I always tell people eight years of being a SEAL, I never really got any new technology. I got new scope on my sniper rifle, I got new camis, but I never actually got any new you know, digital equipment or anything to help yeah. me do my job. And, um, you know, I won't get into the specifics, but you can imagine being in these very chaotic, and Pete, you've been there, chaotic, disorienting environments that are very, very threatening. You know you're in a bad area. You know the people you're going after are, are some of the worst in the country. And a lot of times these, these you know, circumstances can unfold in, in a matter of seconds, and you have to make decisions very, very quickly. And you're sort of optimizing for the right outcome. You, you don't have all the information there at the time. Time, but you're forced to process a lot of information and sometimes react in a matter of seconds. And so you can imagine being in a scenario where you react and, uh, you know, you hope you do the right thing. You're, you're trained to do the right thing. But, you know, nobody wants to get a call the next day to find out that they didn't do the right thing. And I think this is sort of this is a term commonly referred to as the fog of war, right, where it's just very chaotic, mm-hmm. very confusing. And you don't have a lot of information when you're in the field and you certainly don't have access to it when you're in one of these very chaotic situations. So I left that deployment in in early 2007 knowing that I had to build a device that was going to give soldiers, give people that were in the line of fire more information, information that you could collectively Mm -hmm. have as a unit, but you might not have access to when you're on the street corner, you know, with your hands on your rifle and your head up. And so myself, and I'm sure every other soldier and operator out there has, has felt like that a, a heads-up display or a device that you put on your face that presents information out in front of you would sort of be to the soldier what the iPhone is to the consumer, right? It's where you get all your information. It's where you can access capabilities that, that otherwise you wouldn't have. And so that was sort of the impetus back in 06, 07. And then, um, you know, I spent the rest of my time and I did re-enlist once and did a total of four deployments and then got out and said, okay, you know, my next mission is to, is to build this. And, you know, I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship or technology at the time. So I was sort of on a path to, you know, uncover the right, <laughs> the right direction a- as I went. Wow. So, so did you choose Columbia specifically because it had the program, the instructors or the things you thought you needed to help you build this thing? No. So it, it was sort of, my path was kind of one where I was uncovering as I went and sort of adapting on the fly. I didn't know any entrepreneurs. I didn't really know anybody. I didn't know anything about the startup world or Silicon Valley. But what I did know is that I wasn't ready and didn't have the skills to, 
you know, build something and, and bring it to market. And I just happened to find out about a great program that Columbia has for non-traditional students. And it's an undergrad program. And uh, they have a lot of veterans, a lot of athletes, a lot of folks that wanted a top-tier education that didn't go to college right out of high school. And so it's the same education as, you know, the typical college students, but it's a, a non-traditional sort of admissions process. And so I was lucky enough to get into Columbia. And while there, I, I actually started studying economics because I had met some bankers and, and they were like, hey, come work at a bank. You know, we love you guys here. You'll meet some rich people. They'll seed your company and you'll be off, off to the races. And uh, so did that for about a year and a half, interned at an investment bank. And around this time, I was starting to discover blogs by, you know, Fred Wilson and, and you know, all the, all the top VCs that, that you read about today. And I very quickly realized about three or four weeks into that internship that being a banker was not the right path to take <laughs> to uh, starting a, a very sort of tech heavy product, yep. um, particularly one that had nothing to do with banking. And so I left that job, uh, that internship, and actually took a job with a friend of mine who had just blown out his co-founder. It was a small consumer app, about six or seven people strong. And I joined that team and, and actually pushed school off for about a, a year and a half. And my thought process was, you know, I've got three, you know, two and a half, three years left at school. If I graduate with a degree in economics and I know nothing about technology or the startup world, I will be nowhere near where I need to be to, to start a company. Uh, and so I need to understand what the startup world is about. I need to sort of learn what the battle space looks like, understand what I need to learn, and then, you know, take those lessons and go back to school. So I pushed off school for about a year and a half, worked in the startup world, built a little bit of a network in New York, got to know really what I didn't know, and then took those lessons back to Columbia, switched to computer science for obvious reasons, got really lucky that they had a really fantastic user interface. This is basically an AR VR lab at Columbia, yeah. which was really great. And then, uh, you know, also started making relationships in the business school to learn about the venture capital and uh, sort of business side of, of everything. So... It was, it was very much a placing a stone down, taking a step, reassessing, placing another stone down frequently in a different direction. You know, I, without taking a major left turn here, I, you know, we had Tom Byers, one of the directors of the Stanford Venture Technology Program at Stanford. We had him on the radio show recently. And we've had these long conversations about education. And you mentioned the non-traditional approach to it. But yours is kind of a non-traditional, non-traditional approach. You know, it, you, you go do a little, you get a little education, it takes time off. And it's not really time off, but it, it's like more discovery work. That's I don't right. know enough to make the time in the classroom worth it. So I'm going to go work and learn some new things and come back and take a different approach tonight. That's exactly right. You know, I, I, I will say that I did the same thing, but not quite as intentionally, you know, back in the early 80s. And today, I, I swear I'm a better person for it because I was able to go back and forth. But And I'm just, I'm just wondering your thoughts because you do see a lot of transitioning veterans who think it's all or none. I either have to go to school and get everything or I have to go to work, but they never really approach it with a lawn ball approach. It says, I'm going to go for a little while until I figure out what's going on here, save my GI Bill, go to work for a little while, and then come back and, and finish something. But I, I know you probably see, particularly at Columbia, because there is a huge veteran population there. Your thoughts on on how that benefited you versus some of the others you met? Sure. I think I, think I, I was sort of blessed with a very strong sort of vision and, and North Star. I had, I had a very solid goal where I was going. And so it was easy for me to see the right path forward once it became clear. 
I think a lot of people get out of the military and don't quite know what they want to do. And so they kind of go to school and they study something that seems relatively interesting and, and they kind of iterate around just to see if what they're going to do in the future makes them happy. And so I think it's always a great opportunity if you can leave school and go work in industry in some capacity. It doesn't always work for some people. But for me, it was absolutely instrumental just in, in giving me the tools and the knowledge that I needed and the connections to you know, successfully start a, a fairly tech-heavy you know, technology company. So you know, I, I always recommend it. And Columbia is great because it's flexible and it allowed me to do that. Uh, I know a lot of schools wouldn't. You know, you'd have to reapply if you left for more yeah. than the semester or two. So. Yeah. Wow. So, launching Raven, <laughs> launching Raven. You talk about, and I want to say the day one when you said, "Okay, I'm going to fall off the cliff here." How how that first had it come to be, and then, and I'm really kind of curious at how how I went with you personally in making that kind of commitment. You've been thinking about it for a long time, but that's sure. that different than than sinking real dollars real time and saying this is this is my life for the next five, ten years. Yeah, sure. So I originally looked at the idea. I mean, I'd always had it in the back of my mind, but I had originally looked at it in probably 2013, 2014. And I remember talking to a general at the time and, and he said, Jacob, people always ask me, how do you, how do you work with the startup, or sorry, the, the defense department as a startup? And he said, my answer is always the same. It's you don't. And he said it was impossible to work with the DOD. You wouldn't make it through the acquisition cycle. And he just highly advised against it. And at that time, you know, I was still early in my sort of education. So I said, okay, well, that's good because I've got a lot to learn. And so I went back to school. And then in my final probably year at Columbia, I was working pretty heavily in the AR VR lab. And we got approached by Army Cyber Command to do some research for novel user interaction techniques for soldiers in AR. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, I had always been thinking about this and it was something that I was definitely gunning towards, but it put me in the perfect position to start really exploring it, not just from a UI perspective and sort of having the opportunity to talk to certain users, because I already had a pretty solid understanding of what I thought needed to be built, but it really sort of kickstarted me again, calling around to all my friends that were still in the military. And what I found was that many of them were actually in positions of leadership in these new sort of R&D groups that were starting to pop up in these different user groups, like the SEALs or yeah. SOCOM or you know, groups like that. So I started calling around and saying, hey, what are you guys seeing in the space? You know, there's obviously been a ton of private capital being poured into AR and sort of it seems like we're the market is kind of, according to the hype cycle, is sort of getting there. And uh, they said, hey, we're not seeing anything. And so, uh, you know, nobody's building anything that anybody wants to see, but we're all looking very actively for it. So at that point, I said, okay, well, now is the time, you know, and I'd say within a month or two, I was incorporated and, and knew it was time to, uh, time to start building. Wow. Super. Let's go back to, let's go to a, um, a promotion. You're listening to the Innovators Radio Show and podcast on KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. Prison Radio is a San Francisco-based independent multimedia production studio. For 25 years, its mission has been to challenge unjust police actions and prosecution that results in mass incarceration, racism, and gender-based discrimination. Prison Radio produces essays that are broadcast or streamlined, streamed online, bringing attention to the otherwise unheard voices of men, women, and children and spurring debate and dialogue on crime and punishment. Contributions are always needed to donate Visit prisonradio.org. That's prisonradio.org. I think the the part that sticks with me, and I was sitting here writing myself a note that I, I think 
virtually every startup, particularly veteran that comes out of service and into a startup that starts looking back at the government, runs into this first brick wall. And it it's almost a... I call it a face shop, but you, you you start talking to lots of people and else they just don't do stay away from the DOD. It's hard. It's whatever. And and over time, you certainly start to find yourself relying on close personal networks. And I've done the same thing. Absolutely. So I, can you describe? And I'm going to take you all the way back to your your early SEAL days of how those networks have, you know, started as friendships or acquaintances while you're on duty, but now have turned into you know, professional supportive relationships. I, I certainly have enough of my own. I just now started thinking about the way my relationships with people have changed over time from being near peers to peers to acquaintances to now, that, and I don't even describe it, it's not business partners, but it's, it's this geosynchronous orbit around something that's hard. It starts to attract people who really want to work together. Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I, you know, it started off obviously like like you said. You know, I was in training with these individuals. I would deploy with these individuals. You know, and in many cases, I was just incredibly close with them. And then it's amazing how how you'll actually lose touch when you lose the, when you leave the military because everybody's sort of still running and gunning and training and deploying, and it's hard to nail people down. But then when I started calling around, I found that a, a lot of these individuals were you know, like I said, in, in leadership positions at some of these, some of these groups and uh, some of these R&D groups or, or just high up in, in the regular sort of what they call platoon level where they're still deploying and, and operating. And believe it or not, with the exception of folks that knew me directly, being a SEAL trying to go back into the SEAL teams can actually be a hindrance. And the reason is, frankly, there's a lot of, a lot of military who get out and sort of make a, a half-hearted attempt to build something and bring it back into the military, thinking it's just going to be easy and they're going to hand some, you know, halfway built device. Everybody's to, got an idea that it, needs to be fixed. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And so that's actually taken a little bit of, of effort to overcome. You know, I say effort, but it's just been hiring the, the best people I could find and, and raising VC and, and all the things you have to do as a founder. But it definitely has has made people hesitant to meet with me if they don't know me directly because they're just, oh, what is this, another operator with some piece of kit he's going to sell back into us or something yeah. like that. So, so you know, but, but overcoming those barriers, I mean, once you sort of gain people's trust and you show that you have, you know, you're a legitimate operation with, uh, you know, you've got some of, the, some of the best engineers in the world, you know, we've been lucky to build a lot of this stuff. Then people open up very quickly. And then, you know, my Carl, my chief science officer always says, you know, when I talk to, to these individuals, whether it's a colonel or, or one of my buddies who's, you know, a senior enlisted guy, he always says that I don't hold the rifle like a hunting rifle. He says, I know how to talk to them, you know, like peers. And, and it definitely gives me a lot of credibility. I think I have, um, you know, the operational experience to be able to, uh, to push my opinions pretty, pretty, uh, aggressively as well as sort of the technical knowledge, because I studied computer science, I worked in augmented reality, and I know the state of the art, whereas a lot of the folks that are inside, they don't, they kind of, you know, fall, fall victim to the hype as much as anybody else. And so, you know, with that kind of Venn diagram, I think I have the ability to push my opinions uh, in our position probably stronger than most people. Yeah, do you approach that peer to peer? Does it get easier to approach? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, with our sort of track record now, we have a bit of a reputation, I think, now. Even though we're an early-stage company, people know about us. We get inbounds frequently from, from folks. I would say mainly in the special operations community, but also in, in you know, the, the conventional Marines and Army as well. So it's definitely, now it's, now that we've overcome that hurdle, it's, it's definitely been an advantage. 
So let's talk about hurdles. You know, we'll talk about building Raven, and then I think we'll end up coming back to that one. But three biggest hurdles you had to get over in starting and building the company. Sure. So I, I would say on the on the soft skills part, the biggest challenge for me has really been learning how to be a better storyteller. You know, the the product that we're building is actually it's a platform for a soldier and. You know, it's really, really hard to describe what a platform does because you have to pick that sort of one nail that you can drive into somebody's head to convince them that it's a good idea. <laughs> now we have that, but I would say for the first two years, we didn't have sort of the proof points in the, in the you know, all the, uh, all the necessary sort of circumstances to really push our opinion. And, uh, and now that we have that, it's, it's, it's much easier. But I would say it, it took me a long time to understand that storytelling was was you know, my primary job, especially at the early stage. What turned that light on? Can you remember or was just a long insidious infection? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So I would say it was a combination of the progression of our prototype and our demo, as well as sort of the progression of the way things were happening inside the DOD. We, you know, for, for the audience that's listening, we're building a platform that helps soldiers interact with machines on the, ro- on, the, on the battlefield. Drones, robots, soldiers need to be able to interact with these things while keeping their head up, while keeping their hands on their rifle. Before we actually had integrated with any drones or anything like that that we could demonstrate inside, it was really, really hard to describe what that meant to a, to a venture capitalist sitting in, a, in an office, you know, looking at a whiteboard. Wow. You know, I could describe it till I was blue in the face, but it just sort of would go over their heads. And so as a result, we, we pivoted to try different sort of messaging strategies, you know, and nothing was really that effective until a couple of things. One, we integrated with with a really capable drone that you can fly indoors. So now I can put it on a VC or even a different user or anybody, and they can fly it around and you quickly see the light bulb yeah. comes on and they think, wow, this is, this is definitely going to change things. The second thing was all the investment that has been poured into uh, not just like the prime contractors when it comes to drones, but startups out here in the Bay. You know, you've got Skydio, you've got Teal out in Salt Lake, You've got Shield AI down in San Diego. You've got, you know, some of the top tier investors in the world pouring large, large, you know, buckets of money into these companies and they're having a lot of success in the DOD. And so now we can sort of point to that and say, see, this is what we're talking about, you know? So it was a combination of things, you know, but it's definitely become a lot easier in the last, last uh, six months, I would say. Okay. What was the second one? Oof, geez, hurdles. Yeah, convincing anybody to <laughs> to uh, that I knew convincing what I was talking anybody about. to yeah. give me money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that was that was tough in the early days. It was just me with a with a PowerPoint, you know. And yeah. uh, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to build this product with you know a 22 year old out of the AR VR lab, you know, working at 60k a year. I was going to need somebody with experience, and experienced people come with families. And we were living in New York, so it wasn't going to be cheap. So, you know, I sort of went out to raise a little VC, got a little bit of money in the bank, just enough to pay. A co-founder or uh, somebody to come on and help out. Got somebody like that. We ended up building a little bit of a, a demo. We were able to convince the the SEAL teams and another group or two to to give us a little bit of you know a little bit of a contracting you know uh, or a little some some contracting dollars. Just to, dollars yeah, yeah, just to show a little just to show a little traction and then use that and took it back and raised a little bit more VC and sort of this cycle. And that that was really difficult in the beginning because you know we didn't have the progress to to really raise like a, a big institutional round. Big you know, relative for a seed round. And so I probably did 30 or 40 pitches then. We got some really great feedback from some excellent funds out here in the Valley that uh, we have great relationships with that were some of the Series
Series A shops that, that are big believers in the DoD. And with that feedback, we kind of went back and put our heads down and started building again and getting more traction and doing all that. And then we went out again, probably pitched, you know, another 30 investors before we eventually got into YC. And then once we got into YC, things came together fairly quickly. So what's the time frame? If you, if you kind of put it... Sure. I would say probably the first seed round, we, we spent maybe three or four months. Really, that was all yeah. all I was doing was, was was trying to raise. And we were able to raise a little bit, but it was it was high net not, worth. Not substantial enough yeah, to yeah. feel and good about. Not, yeah. Not one yeah. big check coming from one institutional fund. And then we went heads down probably for another year and uh, maybe a little under and then started, you know, raising yeah. again. And that was probably another three months. This time, at that time, I was definitely more prepared, and there were there were definitely a lot of folks that were, you know, that were, I would say, genuinely interested, and they saw sort of the vision. But uh, you know, we're we're very much a uh, you know full stack hardware <laughs> software, not just hardware, but a hardware market that has basically fallen apart at the seams in the last couple of years. So selling an unproven technology into a market that doesn't yet exist to a customer nobody wants to work with. So it, it was difficult. <laughs> what was the, co- if you can recall some of the conversations when you walked out of your presentations between you and your uh, fellow founders, be- between yourselves? If you use profanity, that's fine. We can cut it. Yeah, sure, sure. So I think we were all on the same page. I think what was painful was, you know, not having our story as tight as we thought we had it and being hit from different sides, things we hadn't considered all the time in all these meetings, you know, and constantly having to go back and and refine what, you know, what, what are the answers to these questions, you know, and sometimes you can come up with very legitimate answers and sometimes, you know, either the market's not ready yet or the, the tech isn't there yet or, you know, you just don't have a good answer. And so that, that can be really, really painful. But, you know, it, it is what it is. You just got to keep grinding, you know. So before I ask you the third one, your advice to somebody starting out in your shoes, build a perfect pitch first or build the best thing you can and get out and, and get hammered 30 or 40 times. And it, it's a question of can you, can you anticipate the questions? I mean, I know how I felt. And now being on the investor side, I, I, I get the same look in my eye. When, when folks show up, is it, it's hard. It's very hard. And I, I would say the, the best way to, to go about it is to build a really, really solid team of advisors and mentors that, that you can leverage before you go out to raise. But I, I would say, you know, there's, there's not enough preparation you can do that will allow you to sort of answer or, or have a, a really solid response for every question. Unless the product that you're building is fairly straightforward, the tech is all there. You know, there, you know, there are industries where, where it's much easier. But for what we were doing, everything was still so nascent, including the market, the tech, and just the state of our demo that it was really difficult. So I would say find, find mentors, find advisors that, that you really click with and give them your pitch over and over and over again and just, you know, talk through the details and think about every, you know, uh, contingency, every eventuality that you haven't been asked and try to have a very, very good answer because you're certainly going to get those questions and pitches, so. Yeah, you almost have to get out and do them. All right. Third one. Oh, jeez. Third one, yeah. So, okay, yeah, so when we first started, we wanted to be software only, right? Like every startup, right? It's way easier to build software. And I was fairly convinced that given all the money pouring into the augmented reality industry, there would be a headset at some point that a soldier could wear on the field, 
you know, on the battlefield. And, you know, over the course of probably a year and a half, it became very clear after, after seeing what every company was doing, after, you know, knowing the people in industry, we, we were able to recruit one of the leading sort of uh, minds in the whole AR, you know, space when it comes to optics and displays. This guy is a hardware expert and he has seen everything, everything, because he, he runs a blog and everybody brings him all the, the latest stuff. And so he has this incredible network. He's almost like a journalist in the space. So we knew what everybody's roadmaps looked like. We knew exactly what the hardware challenges were and we knew how difficult they were to solve. And I eventually just came to the conclusion that there wasn't going to be a headset in the next two to three years that a soldier could wear on the battlefield. It just wasn't going to happen. And so we decided, hey, we either pivot and try to solve a different problem or we build the headset ourselves. And we got a lot of pushback from a lot of folks uh, that were like, oh, what, oh. now you're going to build an AR you know, headset. But at the end of the day, my response was always like, we have to own the entire problem. If we don't, we're going to be dead in the water. And right now, the biggest constraint is soldiers don't have a platform to wear on the battlefield. And, you know, the technology exists if you cut out a lot of the stuff that consumer and enterprise companies are going after. You know, we don't need to have stereo, right, which reduces the complexity probably by an order of magnitude. We don't have to have color. That doesn't have to be, you know, overly sexy or look, look real good. It doesn't have to be cheap. And so we, we sort of could avoid a lot of the pitfalls that your average AR company, whether consumer or enterprise, was going to fall into. And with that sort of scoped down set of requirements, you know, and, and the experts we had on, on our team or as advisors, we all came to the conclusion that this is possible. You know, the, the, the waveguides, the, the display technology is, is, is starting to come around to, to make it possible. But it was, it was a, you know, it, it, was, it was a difficult decision to make. But again, it was one where we, we put a stone down, took a step and found out, hey, we're dead if we just try to do software. We are dead in the water. And either we can pivot and do something completely else or we can go all in and, and own the problem, you know, from, uh, from the beginning to the end. And that's what we decided to do. And it wasn't until we really did that that, that uh, people really started to feel like they could take a bet on us. You know, I can't. That <laughs> went through my head was was literally just good enough to be useful, but not so overbuilt to be useless. That's exactly. And right. I think that's been. I don't know how long I've been looking at, at goggles on people's faces since I don't know, probably 2010. Mm. Yeah, and, they've and been I trying it for still a long time. Struggle with uh, and just give me something that gets the sight picture where it needs to be, mm-hmm. and all that other stuff. It, it's interesting, but we don't know enough yet. That's fantastic. Hey, so change gears for just a second. Let's let's talk about the team. Now, you came out of a I call it a highly structured environment of high performers who were closely trained and and deployed over and over and over again. So you, you really formed really tight teams and, and it. It dawned on me when you said you went out looking for a co-founder that you probably had to do um, something akin to your own selection. So let's start with the co-founder and let's talk about what it takes for you to build a team and how much you've drawn on your your former experience versus how much you've had to learn some some new skill sets. So shopping for a co-founder, how'd it go? Sure. So... And uh, we know he's a great guy. Yeah. We'll so, say that up front. So, so believe it or not, I, I am a solo founder now. I had a partner for a bit. Um, okay. We decided it, it wasn't the right fit for a number right, of Right, then he wasn't a great guy. Yeah, yeah. Or he no, was he, for a little he, while. He was a great guy. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was more of a technical, you know, the right technical skills. Yeah. But I went out 
looking for a co-founder with a very specific set of skills that I was looking for. I didn't just have sort of a a best friend that I knew was brilliant that I was going to bring on. And like I said, I knew that person had to be experienced. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be in the AR VR lab at Columbia, which gave me a great network into the exact technology that I needed. And that's when I brought on that early partner that that was really uh, instrumental in in helping us build some early sort of demonstrations of, of what we have now. But I would say the biggest hire was, was when we recruited our chief science officer, Carl Gutag, who is the gentleman who writes a blog on all things related mm-hmm. to AR optics and displays and things. He's been, you know, he's probably 65. He's sort of had two two careers, one at TI building uh, ICs, and then the last 20 years he's been in the optics and display space. And with his blog, he has just, you know, almost unfettered access to the top you know, technology all across the uh, the market. And uh, he does a great job of translating physicists speak down to layman speak. So it's it's very highly read by everybody from, you know, Microsoft, Google, Apple, all the all the big tier ones. And he was interviewed on the this podcast called the AR show, all things related to augmented reality. And, you know, it's like a six hour interview in which he basically just educated you all about you know, all things related to hardware. And at the end, the interviewer said, hey, Carl, would you think about joining another AR startup? And he said, eh, I know the hardware challenges associated with a head-worn display. I'm, I'm pretty bearish on it. So probably not, maybe, but it would have to be a diamond in the rough. And at the end of that, I sort of knew what <laughs> I'm was, about uh, as rough hey, as you yeah, can. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that right? Yeah. So I, I ended up reaching out to him, you know, that week, flew down to meet him in Texas the next week. And I gave him sort of our list of requirements. And I knew what all his concerns were related to AR. And I said, this is why I think those concerns don't apply to us. And he thought, you know, he, uh, he agreed. And, and so I think he, he uh, you know, at that point, he decided to join as an advisor shortly thereafter, uh, our chief science officer. And he's been absolutely instrumental in getting us access to, to uh, suppliers and companies that normally would not work with startups because, nope. you know, they're, they're busy dealing with Facebook and Apple. And so he's just been an absolute, he was an incredible hire. And then when he came on, I said, Carl, we need somebody who knows how to build and ship ruggedized hardware. And he says, that's great, because my former you know, head of hardware at the last startup I was at is probably the smartest guy I've ever met, who did time at the CIA and the DOE. And so he's ruggedized gear and shipped products and volume. And so he basically called him and hired him on the spot, and he's our VP of engineering or hardware. And then uh, that gentleman, uh, the best software guy he ever worked with, just happened to have the uh, the perfect software experience to build uh, our, our application. So we've sort of recruited our team, you know, through, you know, it's like a chain, you know. I recruited Carl, he recruited Paul, he recruited Kyle, and so on. So, but I would say that definitely building teams and, you know, culture is one of the things that I took out of the SEAL teams that uh, has been most beneficial. This fascinating. I, you know, I could, I could stay on this, this subject of hires and leadership and moving people around for, for hours and hours. But I know we need to take a break. Uh, go ahead. Do it. Oh, great. Absolutely, Pete. Go ahead. This is, um, you know, having having been through the growth of a company now for multiple years, I think the the challenges of bringing somebody on and finding out that they were great for a little while until they weren't. And then just the emotional wear and tear on you and, and the company of, of how do you let somebody go? And it's almost like going through a divorce. Very much so. But can, can you talk a little bit about, you know, without upsetting anybody, but, but talk about what you went through and, you know, first in determining that it just wasn't going to work and then, and then how'd you work it out? Sure. So the first, you know, first gentleman I had on board was, a, he was a great guy. He was, he was a partner 
and he was a PhD in computer science, and he built everything in and basically based off some technology he had built when he was getting his PhD. And uh, it was great because it allowed us to deploy very quickly and get uh, a demo in the hands of our users just to get feedback, right? It was just about yeah. shortening that that learning cycle. And eventually it became clear that that wasn't the right technology to then take and build the larger product on. We had to transition to, to something more standardized and, and more capable. And he could never really get on board with that, unfortunately. He was, he was pretty tied... You know, I think to his technology versus sort of the, the goal of, of Raven. And so ultimately we decided that, uh, that you know, it was, it was the right thing for him to go on and pursue that on his own versus trying to sort of do that simultaneously while inside Raven. And uh, it was definitely hard. I mean, it was definitely, we had one VC tell us, hey, if you use this and it doesn't work and you rip it out a year later, the company's going to die. And so it was, you know, I, I knew sort of the implications of having to not only get rid of somebody that was, you know, an important part of the team for, for a small time, but nonetheless an important part. And then also rewrite the software stack. You know, that wasn't an easy, easy thing to do. But, you know, two and a half years later, we're still here. We brought on some fantastic people that, uh, you know, were able to execute. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still talking to that VC today and, and we're not dead. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I, somebody else likened it to, you know, realizing at some point you have to burn the house down in order to build a new one. That's exactly right. And you really that's feel what, like... That's what it feels like, I'm the dude with a gas can and a match standing here looking at my own house yeah. going... I, you know, I don't know how this is going to turn out, and I'm not sure where I'm sleeping tonight, but yeah. here we go. Whoops. Yeah. Off yeah. it goes. That's exactly right. You know, that it's just uh, you walk through some of the hard decisions that so many young companies have had to make, realizing that half the time those decisions will cause a failure. And, and it really comes down to who's leading the company, whether they have the intestinal fortitude to to see it through the heartburst to get the place. So, you know, I think that's, that's testament to you to, to do that. Your role, this many years on, you started out as a single founder, added a partner, got rid of a partner, brought in some some older guys who are, you know, world-class experts in, in what they do as your company is slowly growing. How does your role change? Yeah, that's a great question. I think at this point, we're going to be a team of eight here in October, and we have the sort of raw technical talent now to to build and, and move in the right direction. We have the contracts with the DOD now where, where our customers know about us. They're, they've already taken a bet on us, and now they're just waiting to see us execute. And we have the relationships, I think, with the VCs to the point where when it comes time to raise our Series A, you know, I'm hopeful that we won't have to uh, won't have to meet too many new people. You know, we have a lot of good relationships, a lot of folks that uh, that are really interested in the space, and they've been tracking us for a while. So uh, I'm hoping that'll pay dividends, um, and I'm confident that it will. I think my... You know, my role has transitioned much more into building the company now than uh, than building the product. You know, I still obviously have have a tremendous amount of input on the product. I, I you know, I, I sort of have the product vision, but um, I definitely focus a lot more of my time on making sure that we bring in the right people and that we sort of create it, not a process yet, but at some point it'll be a process around how do we find those people and how do we make sure that they are the right people? And if they're not, how do we, how do we move on from them, you know, sort of in a, with integrity, you know, on, on both sides of the table. So I definitely focus a lot more on thinking about things like culture and, uh, and how we're going to start, you know, at the earliest stage of being very, very deliberate in, in setting what that is. And I think that the first thing you do is that that is defined by the people you hire, you know, so that's kind of where we started. And and, uh, 
you know, as the team grows and things become more challenging, we will expand a lot of the stuff we do with culture. I think it's a little too early uh, right now, but, um, but yeah, you know, when I'm not putting out fires, I think I think about that a lot. And then I also, you know, obviously am putting a tremendous amount of time into thinking about the product as it really sort of matures and, and, uh, how we can offer the, the most value to our customers, you know, to, uh, to make them excited about what we're building. So. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I just... Have you ever differentiated between the working on your company versus working in it? Yeah, I think uh, you have to sort of oscillate between those things a couple times a day. You know, when I'm putting out fires, I'm working in the company. And when I'm thinking about, you know, the traits that we want and the people that we're hiring and, and the process that we're going through to meet those people, I mean, it's definitely like, you know, there's focusing on work inside the company and then there's focusing yeah. on the company. You know? So I, I would say that in, in within BMNT, if we have contentious discussions, it is usually about hiring. And it really comes down to, as my former partners would say, who are all now senior vice presidents. So we've, we've done some significant changes, but, but the higher hiring is about finding the 95th percentile fit for the company, more so than it is you know, technical competence or anything mm-hmm. else, but it is you, you either fit or you don't in this business. And that, you know, Jake Nodder's head, I, I would say that that's... <laughs> I did too. <laughs> I got to tell you, I have no trouble finding brilliant people. They're easy to find. Brilliant people who fit the culture of your company and share a vision and who will bend their own opinions to achieve that vision are much harder to, to find in the right place. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I, I'm in a... I'm going to sort of contradict myself a little bit here and say that... That's you know, okay, you're a startup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Culture is a great way to force conformity around a set of values that you have as an organization. However, you cannot force conformity around everything. You have to sort of know where you want sort of people to add their sort of unique perspectives and allow them to add to the culture. And then you have to know where they need to conform and just join what you've already established as, as your core set of values. And I think knowing the difference between those two things is also really important. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, a little bit of bait and switch between folks that got in a conversation about culture versus diversity. You can establish a very strong culture around your business, which starts to look like a cult, which starts to cut out any diversity of thought exactly if right. you're not careful. So it's almost like an amoeba moving target that they're trying to molding it so that it stays between the rails, but being respectful of the fact that you're desperate for that diversity of thought that different types of people can bring to you. And that's where I get into that 95th percentile fit. Because it's not like give me 95% clones of everybody. It, mm-hmm. It's I don't need any more of these types of people. I got plenty. I don't need another me. I need something completely different. That's exactly right. And, you know, coming out of the military and special operations community, I've, I have seen groupthink firsthand. And I know how damaging it can be no, when you yeah. have a very limited, you know, a very homogenous group of individuals. And so, you know, diversity is a huge, huge benefit to you know, culture into making sure that you don't fall into, I mean, it's the only way you don't fall into that trap. And, you know, we're, we're very intentional about that. I think we definitely have, uh, have, have, uh, ways to improve. The only thing that, yeah. you know, trumps, I think diversity in some ways is just speed and getting the right people in the door at, at this stage. But, you know, even with the, the hires that we've made, you know, there's a, a lot of diversity of, uh, opinion, um, and, uh, and where people have come from and what their interests are. And, and, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a, a great group, even, even different countries 
and things like that. So it's it's uh, it's a great group, uh, and we're definitely looking to uh, to always increase diversity, but still stay within that core set of values that uh, you know that we feel are important. That's awesome. So, then I continue down the the track of talking people for just a second. You've done the transition from New York to San Francisco. Tough call on your part? Is that no. easy call? Uh, after the six winners I spent there, it was an easy, easy <laughs> call. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, I, I always felt like the Bay Area was the right place for this company. Four out of our eight team members are distributed. We've got two in Texas, two in Salt Lake, and that's how yep. you sort of survive on, on uh, you know, at, at this stage with a, with a larger, more experienced team. Not larger, but larger relative to how much funding we have, I think. But once we hit our Series A, everybody will be consolidating out on the West Coast. I'm personally, you know, having been on what I think are some pretty high-performing Forming teams in my day, I'm not a big believer in, in being remote. Uh, I think it really limits your ability to build culture. And I know it's a mm. can be a powerful way in some respects. Can definitely be a big uh, differentiator if you're hiring and things like that. And and there are benefits to it. But particularly for a hardware company, you know, when my VP of hardware prints something, he has to ship it to me overnight so that I can hold it and put it on and play with it and, and give feedback. And that, you know, it's hard to measure that inefficiency, but it definitely exists. And I'm also when things get tough, I think people need to be in the trenches next to each other. You know, fight in the good fight. I think that's how you build a strong culture and a commitment, not just to the company, but to each other, you know, which is sure, the most sure. important thing in my eyes. So how do you, and I want to say, how do you hold a team like that together that, you know, comes from an environment where there are no hours, there's no, there's no real office, because everybody's saying the works they're at, and, and as you said, you have people distributed all over the place, even for a small company gaining some of the efficiency of, of not having to bring them all together, but at the same time realizing at some point Somebody's got to run the company from someplace and, and pull them mm-hmm. all together. Mm-hmm. So, hey, knowing that you're, you're looking down the road at that, how, how are you kind of processing through that with with the company? What? Sure. Uh, you know, getting everybody out on the West Coast is, has been an expectation that I've set from day one. So people, if they weren't into it, they weren't going to join, you know. But in terms of just kind of managing the uh you know, the distributed nature of the team right now. I mean, everybody that we have on is, is very, very mature, very experienced and really committed to the mission. And I think that's a big one is everybody really believes in what we're doing, believes that it's going to save lives. And so they're willing to work weekends and things like that uh, without somebody standing over their shoulder. Not that we would be anyway, but they do what they need to do in order to, to get the job done. And, and frankly, even though I've got uh, some folks on the team that aren't crazy about the Bay Area, I think everybody's really oh. excited. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, everybody is really excited to to get out here and, and, and be working together in the same space and, you know, to be able to share in the ups and downs and, and things like that. So I'm very much looking forward to it, but it definitely, you know, it's been a challenge to have everybody remote. You know, it's it's definitely on me to, to make sure that the, uh, you know, communication happens efficiently without taking up too much people's uh, time and, and, you know, things like that. So keeping everybody sort of marching in the same direction, you know, is, is definitely been a big priority, but uh, especially as we're, you know, even going from four people to eight people, it definitely increases the complexity a little bit. But uh, I think we, we've done well so far and, and uh, everybody, you know, for the most part has worked with each other in some capacity in, yep. in the past. So yep. that definitely helps. There's that shared relationship, but uh, definitely looking forward to getting everybody out here. This is the Innovators radio show and podcast on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM with Pete Newell and Tom Diaro. Well, I just want to make a comment. I'm slightly, your story is, I'm slightly exhausted. I feel like I'm at the Indy 500. 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, everything we're on a quick pit stop here, but wow, what an what a exciting story. I'm exhausted too. If it uh... <laughs> <laughs> so, Kid Mob is a not profit is a nonprofit mobile kid integrated design firm guided by a diverse and talented team of designers, architects, contractors, and engineers. Kid Mob works with young people using project-based learning to address school and community needs. This is done through a variety of workshops, consulting, co-creation of curriculum, and much more. For additional information or to donate, visit KidMob. That's K-I-D-M-O-B dot org. We are talking today with Jake Bullock, founder and CEO of Raven. For more information, you are welcome to visit www.raven.com. That's R-A-V-N dot com. So other than dealing with, with whatever it is that's going on in you, it's like, you know, the four-day weekend hit <laughs> and, and brain cells just haven't quite got their act back together again. That one of the, I don't know, the the thing that keeps popping up, and I think every guest that's been in here, that you know, we really talked about mission driven entrepreneurs and and the passion of actually solving a specific problem and getting there. Let's talk about the problem a little bit. You know, going all the way back to, I think you said 2006 was your first deployment into Baghdad, which is probably the absolute of I don't know how long it's been there, 17 years now. If you had to pick an absolute crappiest year to visit Baghdad, 2006 was probably it. Sagar um, City in 2006 was a, it pretty, yeah, absolutely. about as wild west as you can get. Talk about the first time you said, I, I think I understand the problem. Let's talk about the problem a little bit. And I'm going to peel sure. it back to what, you're, what I imagine is your rather mature understanding of it today. So iteration one of this problem was what? Sure. So at its sort of most basic level, I just wanted to be able to provide soldiers with the information they may have had as a collective unit, but not have had access to while their hands are on their gun and their head was up, right? Um, you can help inform the decisions they're going to make, and those decisions can and do have catastrophic consequences, and I've seen it firsthand many, many times. And so, An that, example. Well, uh, you've got somebody coming through a door, and that individual, you've got, they've got a big piece of metal in their hand, and you know, it, uh, it looks like a barrel coming out at you and you've got less than a second before they see you and pull the trigger. You know, what do you do? Most of us, if it was up to, you know, if it was our lives and the lives of our friends, you know, on the line, we would pull the trigger and that is not always the right decision. And so people have to live with the consequences of doing that, you know, you know, and just sort of, you can go on and recount Pete. I'm sure you have a lot of stories like that where you've had to, you know, you've had to, uh, You've had to act with certainty, having only a very limited amount of information. And sometimes when the dust settles, uh, you made the right decision and sometimes you didn't. And these are really, really tough choices that affect people very deeply. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to go home after you experience something like that and you, you didn't make the wrong decision and then, you know, you were the one that, uh, that you know, didn't come home, you know, it can, it can have... Uh, sort of ripple through people's lives in a very, very impactful way. And so, you know, that's that's where I started. I, I wanted to be able to solve a fundamental problem for soldiers, which is help them make better decisions on the battlefield. And, you know, for me, the heads-up display, that headset was the right way to do that. Yeah, I'm really trying to put some color into this. The, to the folks that, that don't have a lot of experience in a battlefield, the, the idea that people make split-second decisions that change them forever. 
based on the outcome of that decision. And, and sometimes they made all the right decisions, but they still don't have the confidence that they really had no choice in what they were doing. And and I, I, the the doorway thing comes up in a lot of different cases of. I saw somebody silhouetted in the store in, in a doorway, and I had a nanosecond to do something, and I shot, and the round went through the door, through the next wall, and into someplace else that I couldn't see. And, you know, you're, you're troubled with uh, the only weapon I had was a high-caliber weapon, and it went through the next four buildings. And even though you, know, you, you probably save somebody's life by killing, you know, somebody in the first one, you have no idea what what the devastation was behind that, and until later, That's exactly right. when it's way too late for you to do anything, it, it just you, you can't make the decision in the aftermath connect. And I think that's the you get an uncomfortable silence sometimes when you talk to people about how hard that is to do in a nanosecond when when there's you know sweat dripping in your eyes and somebody blaring the radio and and you only see a fraction of something before you have to act on it. And you're scared. You're operating on your lizard brain, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so heads-up display to provide enough spatial understanding of what's going around to allow them to make those decisions faster or at least to understand the, the rest of the context around it. That's right. That. That's where it started. Um, that was sort of my naive approach, which I think every soldier has probably thought about at some point. But then once I started working in the augmented reality lab, so let me rewind, actually. The solution to that being, you know, if anybody's ever played a video game, you've got blue dots on good guys, red dots on bad guys. You know, your are magic. Are floating. <laughs> it's all yeah, magic. Yeah, exactly. Move the cursor, um, you got it. Yeah, yeah. And around that time, if you were even paying attention to the augmented reality industry and some of the folks out there that are, that are you know, very vocal in it, that was all going to be possible, and it was right around the corner. And then you work in the industry or work with the technology for about a day and a half before you realize how, how flawed that actually was, that it was going to take, you know, decades for anything even remotely capable of doing that in a reliable enough way for a soldier to use in the field. So, so very quickly it became apparent that that wasn't going to be a viable solution. And around that time, and, and this is very, very early on in the conception of Raven, around that time, I started to see all the investment going into all the drones and robots and artificial intelligence that the DOD is developing. Not just the US DOD, but you know we're in a great powers competition where China and Russia are investing heavily in these technologies as well. And you know these, these capabilities that will be enabled by robotics and AI have the potential to sort of upset the current world order. And coming from a liberal democracy, I think we all want a liberal democracy to sort of maintain primacy on the world stage. And so around this time, I was seeing all the investment going into this, these different techs and seeing the, uh, the end result and seeing some of the systems that were being deployed in an early stage uh, overseas. And, you know, they, they really want the capability to, instead of sending in a human being, you can send in a robot that can send a video feedback and a 2D map of, of what's going on inside the building. And you know exactly what's going on inside there now. You don't have to send people in to, uh, to you know, get eyes on and potentially get killed. 
And so it's a really groundbreaking capability to be able to see, you know, break your line of sight requirement, right, to get eyes on something. And, you know, the the DOD is very adamant about pushing this human to machine ratio as high as one to one, sometimes north of one to one, right? So you have multiple drones per human being. And uh, while everybody was focused on the drones and the autonomy, I was the only one kind of looking at it going, hey, how in the world are, you know, 10 soldiers going to control 10 drones, right? Because you can't, right now they're all controlled with tablets, of course, right? But that doesn't work when you're in the field. 20 SEALs on an operation cannot sling their rifles, take a knee, pull out their tablets and, you know, uh, send out their drones, right? They're still in the field. And so that was sort of the natural evolution. At that point, I said, oh, well, this is actually the perfect use case for a, you know, heads up display, uh, a system that could simultaneously present a, you know, a small video feed to a soldier in their lower left or lower right hand corner of their field of view, you know, out of their line of walk, not obscuring anything, but give them the ability to see what that drone is seeing while their head is still up, while they still have peripheral vision, while they can keep their eyes on the horizon and identify and react to threats. Uh, If you combine that with a, with an interface, a control interface that mounts to the rifle where their hands, their offhand, their non-shooting hand naturally rests, all of a sudden they have a system that they have full control of while their head is up and their hands are on the rifle. And I really want to sort of emphasize how important those two requirements are for any soldier on the battlefield. One or the other is both. It is both. You know, that that really is, is the difference between you and your buddy going home at the end of the day versus not. And so it became apparent how important this requirement was and nobody else was looking at it. Everybody was focused on just building a better tablet or a better app that, you know, uh, somebody could fly that, you know, was mounted to their chest. So they had to click it down and look down at it. And, you know, they totally reduced their situational awareness and their, and their combat effectiveness. So that's when we started to say, hey, you know, we need to use a heads up display as a platform, as a display for you know, all the other systems that are in the field that can send video feeds or 2D maps or other types of intelligence back to soldiers and they can control it while their hands are on their gun so that you can have multiple, you know, uh, or, or large groups of soldiers at any one time controlling these systems. Now, ideally with autonomy and things like that, they're not actively maneuvering, right? But they're just monitoring sort of as, as what you might call a second screen. And then they're able to make very discreet decisions at times when, hey, go left instead of right, you know, go up versus down, look at that person, not that person. And once you understand sort of, and Pete, Pete and I described it a little earlier, where you have this equation, right, in, in a lot of these dense urban environments or on the battlefield period, you have this equation where it's one human being, innocent civilian enemy combatant, frequently you don't know, they're on one side. And on the other side of this equation is, you know, a coalition, you know, called a U.S. soldier. And when you have that environment and you have less than, you know, a couple of seconds to process everything that's going on in a very chaotic environment where a lot of people are running around and there's people on the radio and it's loud and, you know, kids are screaming and all that stuff. And you make a decision, you're making a decision when you're putting the maximum pressure possible on that, that soldier, right? Mm-hmm. And now by sending in a drone, by sending in a robot that can send you a video feed, that soldier can be viewing that exact scene while they're totally comfortable 150 meters away behind a gigantic tree and the enemy doesn't even know where they are. And so now they're able to process that scene, take in all that information and make a decision about what to do with the people inside that room long before they're under any stress or any pressure at all. And I think that's the, the inflection point of you know the conversation of... I'll say it of lethality, which which gets people in, in the valley really uncomfortable. We talk about making people more lethal, 
on a battlefield. And I will say the flip side of that coin is survivability. So what I would what I would argue would say is that the biggest cognitive burden we face is is speed. And, That's right. And the speed That's of which exactly things right. changes, and, and you know, we've gotten to the point where you know, privates or sergeants out there are making decisions that have you know, not just hugely personal implications to, to their own personal health, but but also have massive strategic impl- implications. And we're asking them to make those decisions faster and faster, or further distance away, and not giving them the information that we're actually beaming back to our higher headquarters where there's somebody, you know, sitting in a comfortable chair can think about things. So it comes down to, uh, yeah, we want to be more lethal, but we want to be more lethal to the people who need it. And we want to protect all the other people out there who would be accidentally killed or something else like that under the wrong circumstances. So, you know, the argument becomes, how do we give, you know, the, the strategic point man the um, tools to see more faster and make decisions before they're a crisis. Yes, and that, it, you know, what I hear is, is Raven's mission is to to break that paradigm and, and give them just enough to take the edge off, not try and inundate them with, with tons of stuff. That's exactly right. And when you talk about the payload capacity or, or the ability for these different systems to carry, you know, packages, you know, you made a, a comment earlier that a, a soldier only had their high-powered rifle as the only tool they could use to solve a problem. And so you either used it or you didn't, and there was only one outcome if you used it. Now, with the ability to put non-lethal payloads on, on these different systems, to put communications equipment, to put sensors on these, on these, pay, or on these uh, platforms, you know, your, your suite of tools that you have at your disposal to solve problems as a soldier has just grown by the number of payloads that you, you know, that the systems sure. you're in the field with can carry. And so it opens up a whole variety of tools that you can use, most of them not being lethal. We're pretty good at being lethal overseas. You know, we don't, like like Pete said, we don't need to get better at, uh, at you know, being lethal. It is uh, reducing the amount of times in which lethality is the only tool. You know, it's the hammer that we have for the nail that we're looking at, right? You know, human machine teaming, as it's called, just represents a, a complete paradigm shift where now... You know, you're limited by the, the capacity of these different systems. And as these systems become more advanced, as they are able to carry more sophisticated payloads, you start reducing greatly the number of innocent, you know, non-combatants that frequently get caught in the middle that shouldn't have to be. And, you know, so it's not only going to save lives in that we're pulling our soldiers, um, our men and women out of harm's way uh, and replacing them with a robot. We're saving lives of the folks that typically get caught in between. Because when you only have a couple of seconds to make a decision, you know, a U.S. soldier, is, he's going to do the best that he can or she can, but frequently in, innocents do k- get killed. And this represents a break in that need where you can give them more time, you can let them process the situation, you give them access to more tools, and it's going to lower casualties on both sides in a tremendous way, I think. Yeah, and I think that's, a, you know, the really powerful statement is, and again, you're making a decision and the time that it takes to change the number of pounds for pressure on your trigger finger. Yep. And, and it's that fast, and you have that much thought that goes into it. If yep. if you can change the paradigm in the battlefield where the lethal response is not the first and only option you have, then there are other things that can be employed to make sure that you're doing the right thing in the right place. And 
in time. You know, in terms of, I guess, the great power competition, it gets kind of lost in the, you know, we go back, to, you know, straight to, we're going to have lethal robots running around the battlefield and they're going to fight all the wars is, it's so far down the road that we're talking about technologies that can be employed today in the simplest form that could have a, a significant impact on the ability of, of folks to, to make the right choices when they need to. So why wait? That's right. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge believer that anytime soon, probably in our lifetime, we'll have lethal robots just roving, roving the battlefield, you know, maybe we'll have that capability at some point. I think there's a lot of very important ethical and moral discussions that need to happen before we get to that point. And I'm not convinced that, you know, they'll ever happen, but artificial intelligence is absolutely going to have a massive impact when it comes to saving lives on the battlefield. And for a little context as to where we are right now, you know, we've just now gotten to the point where you can send a quadcopter into a room and have it fly around that room, clearing all the corners. That's about as advanced as we are when it comes to the AI that's being used on the battlefield. So it's going to be a long time before we really even need to have the conversation where, yeah. where is this going to, is this, you know, Terminator system going to, you know, go lethal on somebody? It needs to be talked about. But the fact is right now, artificial intelligence helps us discriminate between who needs to be lethally engaged because there are individuals that do and then who doesn't and it gives us the ability to pull our soldiers out of those environments where they don't have to make those sec those incredibly important decisions under an immense amount of stress and pressure and allows them to uh to also have access to different tools to, sure. to you know maybe leth lethality isn't the right choice you know sure. so you know it's it's almost ironic that a lot of the uh you know, the folks that are protesting the use of artificial intelligence on the battlefield are actively hurting our chances to save more people, you know, more innocent civilians, more more of our men it's and women. probably the most frustrating conversation I it have is, is, it is people look past, I don't want to say they don't get it. And it's partly our fault because, you know, quite frankly, we've been at war for 17, 18, 19 years now, something like that. Um and because we come from a, a highly professionalized military and because of a lot of reasons, we tend to be very close-lipped about the realities of what what combat is like, and yeah, particularly true. some of these harder, crappier places. Um, law enforcement folks are, are just like the same. They they have many of the same issues, although I think that they, you know, because of the public eye, see a lot more on the scrutiny. You know, you've seen them go to body mm -hmm. cameras and, and other things just to defend them. But but at the same time, and I was reading this morning, a comparison that the FBI just you know, published in a report which said there were cases where, I know what they call it, depolicing where the police have become so concerned about the public reaction to what they're doing that they are no longer policing the environment that they were supposed to, which mm -hmm. is the city of Chicago, become more dangerous. And so, right or wrong, for whatever intent, uh, you know, a lot of focus on, on getting, you know, professional law enforcement, military, to, uh, you know, be less focused on pulling a trigger on something and, and more respectful of the environment they're in at the same time is preventing them from getting their hands on the technologies that would in fact solve that problem for them. Yep. And we're just making it harder. Yeah, that, uh, that's a, a great discussion that lots and lots more folks out don't listen to. So we'll take the direction and, and, and just change the direction. Let's talk about other environments where your version of this technology would be you know, most prevalent. Any ideas, like commercial? Sure, sure. Other places? So 
you know, certainly law enforcement, you know, we uh, really what we're doing is pulling in telemetry into a headset that allows for a hands-free environment, effectively hands-free. That's obviously relevant in law enforcement where, you know, they need to see into areas before they make entry or even a routine traffic stop, you know. Uh, Law enforcement officers get killed all the time or get wounded through approaching a vehicle where there's an armed individual inside. But I would say most recently the one that's really excited me is working with sort of the Air Force's version of, of fire jumpers. They, you know, work to contain large forest fires. And at any one time, they have the sort of perimeter of where the fire is, but they don't know exactly where it's where the most sort of energy is built up for it to spread the most rapidly, right? So they have to constantly make a determination as to where they distribute their resources in order to uh, optimize for containment, right? And they have these big fixed-wing drones that, you know, fly above, you know, the, the trees and, and uh, are very expensive and they don't like risking them. And it's it's really hard to get down below in, in these densely wooded areas and, and actually see the spread of the fire. And so they're looking at a lot of, a lot of smaller, you know, uh, quadcopters, things like that, that can basically do all that, but in, in, in and amongst the trees uh, and provide them with that kind of intelligence so that they know where best to deploy their resources. And uh, Skydio, actually our, our sort of preferred platform from what we've seen so far, you know, is, is a, a great platform to enable that because they have fantastic collision avoidance. So they're never going to run into a tree, right? And that's just something that we're really excited about and that, you know, a fireman obviously has to have their hands free so they can't be carrying around a tablet. So if they're able to pull in that intelligence into a headset while they're you know, on the scene, I think that'll be really, really beneficial. So, at, you know, there are a lot of different areas that, that we're excited about, but I think that's one that uh, that is particularly interesting for us. You know, I hadn't thought about the, you know, particularly smoke jumpers. You know, everybody's, you know, kind of familiar with the movie about the Prescott fires years ago where they lost, I think it was 19 firefighters in one, mm-hmm. one fell swoop. And mainly because they couldn't see the change in the fire. They actually had a guy set as as an observer someplace who was supposed to watch for things and he's the only one who survived but he was unable the comms and, and other things to to tell people what was going on versus you know i go back and i say this over and over again getting getting the sight line into the eyeball the person needs it most it is usually the last guy i guess it now so the That's idea right. of I've got a drone or any drone that I can pull down and actually get, I can see for myself what somebody's trying to explain to me. I, I make better, faster decisions on my own versus by augmenting that with, with now the verbal cues that somebody would give me. Yep, that's exactly right. What's the pushback you get? I mean, so, you know, the challenges of actually getting that both from from a personal level, I think we've, we've talked it to death, but now from a software and unemployment. I mean, we do really hard things now. It's, it's how, you can do it once, and you can do it in the lab, and you can do it lots of places, but how do you scale it? What, sure. What's, what's ahead of you? You know, so our, our biggest roadblock right now, or our biggest risk that we're focused on, is actually the headset. You know, I, I sort of everybody kind of laughed when I when I brought up going to the AR space because it's 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 well known how difficult that that space is, and. You know, no company has ever built a headset that a soldier is willing to wear in combat. And, you know, they just invested heavily in, you know, Microsoft HoloLens. And I I always just, you know, hey, if you're willing to wear that and go paintballing or even play soccer, then maybe it's an option. But until you get to that point with any headset that's out there, you can strike it off the list. And so, 
you know, having Carl on our, on our team and having seen everything and being well aware of all the technologies out there, we didn't set out initially sort of, and just, okay, it's day one, let's just start designing and building, right? We spent a lot of time putting together a very tight specification for what these needed to look like and how they needed to function. And then spent time looking at every single optical architecture, every single display, everything out there, down to contacts that present information to you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we did that for about a year, year and a half. And eventually, you know, you kind of become the company where, oh, those guys are, in air quotes, always building a headset, right? Because that's what we were telling people. Hey, it's, we're looking, we're, we're designing, we're looking. And it, it got to the point where it was like, okay, we're, we're going to need to build something soon or else we're going to be basically out of the conversation uh, and lose our seat at the table. So luckily, one of the best you know, optical architecture companies, uh, waveguide companies out there came out with a really new, brand new system that we were some of the first ones to see. And, you know, they don't typically work with startups, but they love Carl. He's been a, you know, a big, uh, a big personality for a long time. And so they have a great relationship with him. And, and they basically said, well, if Carl's involved, you know, they must be legit. And then of course, Microsoft wins $500 million to sort of compete in this space and, and build their version of, of an augmented reality headset. And so they said, okay, well, there's also real money here. And um, so, you know, we finally got that device. Uh, we haven't even gotten it yet. We'll get it in the next week or two, but we've been de- building a headset around that. And that has absolutely been our number one risk factor. Everybody says, hey, we love the vision. We love the interface on the rifle. The software works great. We think you check all the boxes. The way you can intelligently route data, nobody's ever even thought of that before, let alone, yeah. you know, no engineer from Microsoft or any of these primes has ever even, you know, brought that up. So that's that's a really sort of novel concept. And we had sort of thumbs up all around, but it was always, well, we also got to see the headset. You know, that's the most important part. So we will hopefully have that uh, in the next month or two. And we're really excited about it because I think that'll be sort of the, the final check mark before we, uh, you know, start kind of really kicking it into high gear. Now we've already gotten the, the contracts we need. So we're, we're well enough funded to go out and raise our series A and, and all that from the DOD. So, so anything additional is just icing on the cake. But for, for me as an operator, knowing that I'm going to turn around and walk this into my buddies who are still deploying down, downrange mm-hmm. overseas yeah. and, you know, to try to sell them something, it has to be something that I would be willing to wear you know, on the hundred plus ops that I've been on. And thus far, I haven't seen anything. And finally, 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 you know, in the next month or two, we'll have one that I would feel comfortable, you know, going to my, some of my closest friends and with integrity saying, Hey, you can wear this overseas, you know? So that, that's definitely been a challenge, but you know, it's a, uh, the software is, <laughs> everything's tough in software, you know, and, uh, you <laughs> know, thought it, software was tough until yeah, you talked about yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and really one of the big challenges that we have is actually a UX problem, user experience, right? User experience for, you know, consumers and enterprise is just like a sort of a nicer experience. User experience for a soldier translates basically almost one-to-one to to combat effectiveness and combat effectiveness is their ability to stay alive in the field. And so, you know, that is a tent pole of our company. It is something that we put a tremendous amount of effort and thought into to make sure that when they use this system and they're under maximum stress, stress, maximum pressure, they can get the exact drone they need at the exact right time with minimal clicks of, you know, whatever button they're clicking and do what they need to do with it all while they can still be up, able to identify and react to threats, you know? And, um, I think in the defense world, there aren't too many companies that think like that. You know, Pete, as, as you know, um, no, user interfaces. And, yeah. you, know, you, you picked a crowd of people who are well known for having a diverse set of opinions. In other words, every single one of them has got his own opinion about the way it ought to work. Mm. 
And, you know, from a UI, UX standpoint, that's the worst crowd of people you could ever try and work with. That's really tough. Because they're all right, and they all think each other wrong. Mm -hmm. And and it is highly personal. So, you know, my applaud to you for for taking on the the hardest ones out there. Okay, so you're... How many years into this? Ten years of thinking about this, at least. Yeah, yeah. Seven years of preparation on top of an eight-year SEAL career, I think. I've been practicing for nine, and and (laughs) I've been at it for one. (laughs) The... You know, your thoughts on, and I'll let you pay it forward a little bit. Somewhere there is a veteran or somebody else who's been out in the workforce who's a non-traditional who thinks they might want to be an entrepreneur. And here's an opportunity. What what would you tell them? Sure. Um, So I have this conversation a lot with SEALs and other operators that get out. You know, these people are uh, insanely confident and think they can do anything. Uh, which is a great, great quality to have. But when everybody not, believes that, yeah. they try and raise money. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, that is not the truth. You know, it's a great quality to have, but it needs to be paired with uh, with humility and uh, and the willingness to say, okay, I may have done really well in this one, you know, area where I was a SEAL and I exercised a, an incredible skill set or set of characteristics and developed a skill set. But I'm going into an area or an industry that. You know, those those qualities are certainly helpful, but they will absolutely not get you to success. And so every SEAL or, you know, operator that calls me and says, oh, I've got this great idea for, for a company, you know, I basically spend 30 minutes to an hour teasing apart how much preparation they've done in order to execute on it and then tell them that they need to stop doing what they're doing and go prepare. And I would say... You know, that was my biggest takeaway, even from the SEAL teams. You know, we used to consider ourselves in SEAL training. You were this sort of iron ingot, right? A big chunk of iron. And you were thrown into the fire and pulled out and hammered and thrown into the fire again and pulled out and hammered and and over and over and over. And it's incredibly painful. And eventually you came out as a sword and something that somebody was able to use. And, you know, preparation is definitely, uh, you know, I spent six and a half, seven years preparing, you know, not knowing where to go, not knowing what to study, but not knowing who I needed to meet and who I needed to follow and, and, uh, and learn from. But, uh, every step I went, I sort of always just had, you know, in the back of my mind, you know, I, I have sort of the raw ingredients, I think, to be successful, but now I need to translate yeah. that into the hard skills, the knowledge, the experience, and the, and the connections. And, and I spent, you know, six years in New York doing that. And so, you know, I, that's what I tell people is figure out what you want to do. If you have a product that you want to build, you know, figure out what you need to learn in order to build it. And, you know, all the blogs out there and everything that exists, there are so many books now, you know what, you can find what skills you need. It's, it's up to you to go out and develop that skill set, whether at school or at work or wherever in your off hours. Um, but don't, don't pull the trigger until you're ready. Because, you know, while you'll certainly learn a lot from pulling the trigger, you know, I want to be successful, you know, and so yeah, I optimize for success. You know, I had this discussion with somebody last week, and, and it started out the same way. I've got an idea. I want to build a company. But I got a day job, and, 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 and I'm going to do it kind of part-time. And, and they don't want to say the rude awakening, but the, the discussion really around, you know, when, when you were learning to be a special operator, there are people who worked full-time, and it was their job to make who you were. Mm-hmm. And they didn't get to choose you. You you actually were selected and handed to them, and they said, mold this young man, and he's passed buds, and, you know, off he's going to go. In this world, there are people who will work full-time and are, have to work full-time in order to make you a, a successful entrepreneur. But in this case, they're going to choose you. 
And you have That's to right. make them want you versus the thousand other people standing up ready to do something. And you, you, A, you can't get there part-time. You can't get there if your idea is half-baked. And you can't get there if you're not willing to take the rather brutal pounding of, of getting out there and iterating the pounding and the iron and mm -hmm. the fire. Mm -hmm. Well, that lump is you, and you're going to get through the beating, and you're just going to get hot, and you're going to do those things. Um, it's not for everybody. And invariably, I end up having a conversation about family. It's okay. You think you really want to do this. Let's talk about your family. Yeah, does your family know what you're getting into? I mean, I, so, and I guess it's a you know, the great, great place to lead with you is just... When you went through this process, how did your family kind of sure, they so, think you're crazy or they <laughs> they know it for sure now? I think, you know, when I first said, I first said I wanted to be a SEAL, probably eight or nine. and uh, First act of craziness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, spent the rest of my, uh, I don't know, schooling preparing for that. And I was an athlete specifically because I was going to go to SEAL training, you know, not because I loved being an athlete. And so when I transitioned and was getting out and said, okay, I want to build an, or I want to build this, this company, everybody at that point, you know, initially when I said I wanted to be a SEAL, they said, oh, okay. Uh, you know, yeah, everybody yeah, said, yeah, yeah, astronaut too, right? Um, and then when I became a SEAL, they were like, oh, okay, he, he's pretty serious about it. And so when I told him I wanted to be a SEAL, or I'm sorry, a, an entrepreneur, it was like, okay, well, uh, uh -huh. we, we, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. I, I, we think you can do it. I, you know, they, they were, they were supportive, but you know, there was a bit of disbelief there cause I was just getting out and, you know, after six, seven years of being at Columbia and sort of iterating and doing a lot of things that were very unpopular at the time. When I left school, everybody thought it was a horrible idea. One guy called, called it tragically stupid. As I left New York, he said he was, he was jealous that I kind of had a company now that I was moving to the West coast. Uh, he's a great guy, but just, you know, um, was a little bit more conservative anyway. Uh, the f my, you know, my family's always been very supportive. They, they've learned since to take me pretty seriously when I say I'm going to do stuff. I'm lucky that I don't have a, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm dating, but you know, uh, I don't have any, you know, I'm not married. I don't have any kids and, and I'd probably be lying if I said that, you know, or if I didn't say that was by design, you know, I've always been a burn the ships kind of guy where, you know, when I got to SEAL training, I was either going to leave with a trident on my chest, you know, the, the insignia they give to SEALs, or I was going to be wheeled out. And that's kind of how I feel about, about what I'm doing right now is, you know, uh, I'm willing to sacrifice just about anything to, uh, to see it through fruition. So, you know, my family takes it seriously and they kind of, <laughs> they, they watch and, and they hope for the best, you know, but I think they've, they've got a, a reasonable amount of confidence in me now. So I'm lucky to have them. So who's your go-to person for um, good on it advice? Good Where on you go? I, I have a, an advisor who's a phenomenal guy, oddly connected deep, very deeply into, into NSW, Naval Special Warfare, the SEAL teams where I come from. He he's a came from Qualcomm, helped them scale a long time ago. Yeah. He's as close to a founder as I have now, or a co-founder, rather. Uh, sometimes I talk to him every week, and he, he gives me very, very objective, you know, very, very excellent feedback. He distills things down to the, the kernel of truth. He st strips away the context, which I always appreciate. And sort of, he's, he's been my go-to for a long time, and I'm, I'm lucky to have him. So... But he, you know, I can't, I can't stress enough how important it is to, to have somebody like that in your corner because entrepreneurship is sort of like you're standing in the middle of a field. You don't know which direction to walk. The only thing you know is it's a minefield. And every step you take could, could take a toe off, could take a leg off, or it could wipe you out. And uh, good advisors and, and uh, mentors help you pick a direction and then, you know, tread lightly. 
Yeah, that's probably the best description I had. Yeah, you know the the idea of if you know, quite frankly, there's a couple of scales. The minefield just gets bigger, and yeah. the mines yeah, get bigger. Yeah, mines get bigger. Yeah, and they're, they're hidden more. I mean, it, and you have it's, more people walking with you. Yeah, and they have more opportunities to set them off that mm-hmm. they're going to take you with it. Yeah. So I, you know, just you know, if, I think the opportunity to sit and just listen to to Jake for a little bit talk about you know the transition from being a a veteran coming out of combat and making the transition into, you know, a, a pretty high-end Ivy League college as a non-traditional and then making the decision to leave and then going back in a different route and then starting a company and moving a company from New York to San Francisco. You know, nobody probably would have, you know, when you're walking off the, the field as a senior in high school, you know, headed to... The SEAL training would have ever picked that pathway out. So where do you think you end up? I mean, you know, 10 years from now, where do you want to be? Where do I want to be? What do you, you know, uh, I, I would like to be. Let's assuming this, this company was hugely successful. But what's, sure. I, I would like to be running one of the most important public defense technology companies on the planet. Okay. Period. Full stop. That's well said. <laughs> That's well said. You know, that... Uh, yeah, I'm really, really excited to, to have an opportunity to, to one day have you just talk about some of the lessons. But I, I think it's important uh, from a you know a social standpoint when somebody like you says, "I want to run one of the most important defense companies." It's not just biggest, best. It's important, which is different than I want to be the next Lockheed Martin or something mm-hmm. else. It's not not that the bad guys, but. Yeah, it depends where uh, <laughs> you want to. Yeah, you want to be in a position where it's going to be impactful. That's right. And not just impactful on the forward edge of the battlefield, but but for the country as well. And that's I right. think that's the. It says a lot about you and your motivation to to help get there. So, Tom, you've been sitting here, you know, patiently listening to the two of us talk back and forth. And you know, I want to say, for somebody who's of the valley, you've been here for a long time. Kind of your thoughts on on how this plays out, the the pressure against AI and ethics and and building defense companies and and things like that. Where yeah, you know, where do you think the valley goes from this point? Definitely up. It has to. There's no other way to go. Well, there is another yeah. way. <laughs> well, unfortunately, uh, not that you, it's it's not the choice. You need uh, you need what I think what we're we're trying to do we're not trying we're doing is uh, like what jake is doing is you have to be all in you know it's whether you've gone through military training seal training whatever it is you have to you have to be give your heart your soul every every ounce of yourself to whatever the purpose is and you have to be willing to know at almost all at all levels that you're willing to sacrifice now jake i have a family three three kids uh, two have gone through college and one's still in high school and i'm i'm uh, crazy or unique in this valley being brought up here uh, and that i've uh, chosen entrepreneurship throughout that process and uh, there's damage from that within your own family that you uh, uh they have to you dragging them through you really are. And uh, when they come through it, 
the difference I've seen, especially since, uh, you know, things, the, I can't say the hardest part's over, but the, a lot of the, the, the scarring is, is, is over, but you still have those scars is what it's done for your children is it's given them a perspective that is very and highly unlikely that their, their peers have experienced Mm-hmm. Unless they're they're one of their parents, if not both of them, have succeeded throughout the whole process. But mm-hmm. they didn't under they, they they just didn't experience the uh, uh, trauma, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, just that trauma of doing something when everyone else, including your own family, is not supportive. In fact, vehemently against what it is you're doing. But you still keep going ahead with it. And then when it you, when it works out, uh, still not acknowledging that. Oh, it worked out. I didn't think it was going to, but just not going to talk about that. Okay, so you've succeeded. So I don't know. I keep uh, searching for, is this a a calling or is it something that you're just, you know, obsessed with? And uh, whether it's a calling obsessed or something you can train for, in order to get to have these achievements and these, you know, like you're saving lives on the battlefield... In order to do that, you have to have an individual or collection of individuals that are really willing to do that. And that is yeah. that your, would you say, 95%? It may be even like a percent of 1%. Yeah. You know, it was, it was Trey Stevens said something. I actually went back and listened to his podcast again yesterday. As he said something, and he was really talking about, you know, going all in on something. And he said, you know, there's a difference between people who try to do a little, you know, he's talking investing at the time, but he was very specific when he talked about AI and going all into it. And and kind of my takeaway, having listened to it the second time, is he's really specific about you have to get in and work with things to understand how they're actually going to be applied. You won't ever understand the ethics until you actually broke a couple of things. So if you're afraid to go in or, or to actually get involved in something, it's easy to sit back. But in a world of, of great power competitions, we can't afford to. You, you can't afford not to understand the implications of the use of the technologies over a variety of different things. And quite frankly, the only way you're going to learn how to do that is to actually get out there and try. That's right. And, and unfortunately, if, if you allow somebody else to do that for you. They're going to make the decisions for you. Mm -hmm. They're going to make the rules for you, and you will suck down whatever they do. And I I kind of with Jake, I think we would prefer that the folks with the heaviest weight of decision-making that be liberal democracy, you know, all this messiness, actually making those kinds of rules. That that just surprises me some days that, that you don't have as many brutally honest conversations like that as we ought to. Yeah. I would add to that and sort of bring it from sort of the global level down to the individual here in the Valley. If you're for or against working with technology in the defense department, you know, that doesn't mean that you support all war. doesn't mean that you support every administration out there. doesn't mean that you're always going to be, you know, military, rah, rah, rah. You know, what it means is that you can look at the people that you know sitting next to you at Google or Facebook or wherever that are veterans. And by, by actively protesting, working on technology for them, you're effectively looking at them and saying, I would rather you deploy with 1960s technology than with the stuff that we can turn out here in the Valley, some of the most advanced technology on the planet. I would rather keep that out of your hands. 
yeah. because I don't like where you're going. I'd, I'd rather you not have the ability to make better decisions. I like the crappy ones exactly. you're stuck with exactly. because you're using 1960 exactly. technology in a 21st century fight. Exactly. And, 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 you know, and when I hear stuff like, you know, the, the protests, I mean, I, I understand I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to a lot of that and a lot of the motivations that underlie that. But to me, it's, it's very personally, it's hurtful because I know a lot of vets that are unbelievable human beings. I know a lot of young men and women that get sent overseas. And to think that we're going to actively withhold the most advanced technology that we can muster as a society from them, to me, is it's sad. And it's, it's almost, it's morally abhorrent. You know, these people don't have a choice in where we send them. We collectively, as a country, send them to do a very dangerous job overseas. And it's our responsibility to make sure that they have the most advanced tools and technology at their disposal so that they can stay safe and they can make the best decisions possible and they can come home. You know? I agree. Well, you know, I, I think... Uh it wasn't my intent to head down that road when I started the podcast yeah, today, but, <laughs> yeah. but thank you, Jake, for, for you know, we warned you. Yeah. Uh, we, we take a lot of turns in this room. Listen, I, I'm particularly, you know, I've, I think I was one of the first people you saw in the Valley yeah, I think so. early on with your tech, and, and I'm sure that my conversation was pretty brutal at the time as well. Helpful. Um, I, as, uh, as they all are. I certainly appreciate the time that, you know, A, that you stuck to it and, and that you're still here. But I want to, you know, personally thank you for taking time to join us on the show. And thank you, Jake. Share where you're My at pleasure. And, pleasure. and where you're headed. You know, we're firm believers in this concept of mission-driven entrepreneurship. And we'd like pulling out while you're at it. But also there's some great lessons in here uh, for other entrepreneurs, uh, other veterans who are in it. And, and quite frankly, if you're somebody from the Valley listening to this who's not sure how you feel about the use of technology and, and defense applications, you know, we, we'd love to talk to you even more. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of great work being done by, by folks like Jake out there. Now, you've been listening to the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast. Our guest today has been Jake Bullock, founder and CEO of Raven. Jake served eight years as a Navy SEAL. He was deployed four times to Iraq and Afghanistan, where his team primarily focused on counterinsurgency operations. Following his time in the SEALs, Jake earned his Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science from Columbia University. He conducted research on novel user interaction techniques for augmented reality for soldiers in Professor Steve Feiner's Computer Graphics and User Interface Lab. Raven was born from his experience. For more information, feel free to visit www.raven.com. That's R-A-V-N.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another mission-driven entrepreneur, thought leader, or game changer committed to smart ideas, innovation, and getting out of the building. I'm Pete Newell. And I'm Tom Dior. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsustanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu.